Hello, I'm Cheryl Kennedy from the Library of Congress. Last year, more than 100,000 book lovers of all ages visited the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, which is sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now, in its seventh year, this free event will take place on the National Mall Saturday, September 29th. Festival goers will interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. There will be activities for the entire family. If you are unable to attend in person, we invite you to experience the festival online. Our podcast interview series with well-known authors, along with webcasts from the festival, will be available through the National Book Festival website at loc.gov slash bookfest. honor of talking with award-winning journalist and investigative reporter Maria Celeste Rollis, who is currently the host and managing editor of Telemundo NBC's All Rojo Vivo. Her first book, Selena's Secret, became a bestseller. Her latest book, The Magic Cane, is written for young readers and is available in both English and Spanish. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I'd like to know what inspired you to go from investigative journalism to writing children's literature? Well, precisely that. I, I, I wanted to go to something completely, completely different. I had written before uh, Selena's Secret, which was uh, an investigative report on the uh, murder of Selena Quintanilla Perez, the Tejano Tex-Mex queen. And it was a very difficult book to write because... Uh, her murder was so horrible, and, and the process of writing a book that is investigative is very, very tedious. You have to spend endless months reading different kinds of uh, court documents and investigating and reading police reports. And the story itself was so, so sad that I really wanted to go to something that was the complete opposite, something that was happy, that was fantasy, that was uh, kind of under my control when I had to write it, and that I could edit or, or change at, at my my own uh, whim, and, and, and it really, when the idea came to write a children's book, it was like the perfect uh, option to what I wanted to write. What's your underlying message in the book, The Magic Cane? Well, there's several ones. Uh, I definitely wanted a book that was a, a, a magical fable, like the kind that I grew up with with my, my grandparents when they sat me in their lap and, and told me a story, and, and they all began like once upon a time. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to have a, the kind of book that was like a generation, like, like it was a bridge for the generations. And uh, all these books had the, the, the particular uh, characteristic that they had a lesson or different lessons. And in my case, uh, The Magic Cane has four uh, different lessons, one of them being uh, that you have to be kind to people that are in a disadvantage. In this case, the old lady that had the cane, and um, obviously there's two boys at the beginning of the story, and one of them is really evil and mean to the lady, and at the end he pays a high price for that. And another one that is very kind and loving and considerate with her, and at the end of the book uh, he is rewarded in an incredible way. Yet at the beginning of the story, it comes across like uh, like it's really the other way around, that the bad one, uh, it's, it's blessed, and the other one really gets nothing for his, his act of kindness. And then the story uh, shows that, you know, it wasn't, that way at all. Uh, the second story is a, um, the second story, the second uh, lesson 
in the book is that more is not always better. Why? Because the boy that, that was the evil one, Mokonoko, uh, who becomes the evil emperor later in the story, he ends up having three of each of his senses, and uh, three noses, three mouths, three ears. Uh, and, and, and basically, at the beginning, he thinks that's a good thing, but then he realizes that by being so greedy, he, uh, he sold his soul to the devil, and he basically uh, became a miserable being. And then there's another one, which to me is the most important one, which is that a family that sticks together, it's invincible. Uh, in this case, the three kids that have the superpowers, the three kids of the good boy at the beginning of the story, uh, they learn that only by fighting together can they defeat evil, in this case, the, the evil emperor, Mokonoko. So, um, and, and the reason why I wanted to convey that message is because when I first started you know, working on the story, I had three small children, ages, uh, now they're nine, eight, and six. Uh, back then they were two, three years younger. And they used to get in a fight every time I started telling a story because each one had something they wanted to hear about. And, um, and so I had to invent a story for them and start telling them something that they wanted to, to hear and they were interested in so that they would stop fighting. And, and, and at the end of the story, they realized that only by fighting together and using the superpowers in a conjunction with each other, can they defeat the evil emperor? While they try on their own, they were not successful. You mentioned that the three children in your book had magical powers. Of course, you're very talented, but if you had to have one magical superpower, what would that be? Uh, well, it would not have anything to do with the book. If I, if I had to, uh, to have one magical superpower, I, it would be definitely uh, the ability to to make sure that justice and peace ruled in the world. Well, that's certainly, um, I guess, if, if you had to have one opportunity or one power, that would be a very good thing to wish for. Um, you were born and raised in Puerto Rico, uh, but you attended college in New Orleans. Uh, and obviously you lived there for a few years. Uh, did Katrina affect you more personally because you lived there? For several tremendously, years. tremendously. As a matter of fact, when I went to college in Loyola University in New Orleans, and I loved that city tremendously. And two months before Katrina, I had been there after a long time uh, that I had not visited. And when Katrina took place, amazingly enough, I was on vacation in Africa. And when it hit, and the days after that, I was in the middle of literally the savannah in a, in a camping ground with no electricity, so I had no idea what happened. And I was in Kenya change, exchanging, I mean, making a, a, a change of light, and I saw the television, and I, I'm watching the news, and I'm hearing the, the mayor of New Orleans uh, talking about everything that was going on at the time. And I started to cry in the middle of the, of the, uh, of the airport, and I was with a colleague of mine who had went, gone to school with me, in Loyola at the same time, and it was like we were both devastated. So we found out in, in the middle of a very happy time about a very, very big tragedy. Your illustrations in the book, the illustrations in the book are striking, and the depiction of the king with his extra appendages is very creative. Explain the collaboration process between a writer and uh, the illustrator. Well, listen, in this case, it was sort of like a magical... Uh, formula because we never spoke to each other during the entire process until the book was finished, which I called him to congratulate him. First of all, uh, Scholastics hired the illustrator 
And uh, he turned out to be a very talented Argentinian uh, illustrator named Pablo Raimondi, who used to work with Marvel superheroes. And, and at the beginning, uh, there was a slight concern because, you know, these superheroes are very uh, futuristic and very harsh, and this was a magical fable with a lot of fantasy and, and, uh, and this kind of very romantic kind of world. And, and he really added uh, a, a tremendous uh, element of, of the future together with the story, which is a story like, like, a, like a classic story. And we, I think we were, it was a great combination. At the beginning, um, you know, we kind of had to tone down the characters, but when he came up with the uh, emperor, and I saw it in, in, uh, in black and white, even be before it had color, I was mesmerized because he really did a fantastic job. I imagined the, the evil uh, emperor, Mokonoko, in one way, but it was kind of abstract. I didn't have a clear vision, and I was concerned that, that if I didn't have it clear, how could the illustrator have it clear? And this guy, you know, really killed it on the first uh, draft. He really did a, a fantastic drawing, and uh, he really captured what I wanted to have in, in that emperor, and, 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 and it went so good with, along with the name that it was just a magical combination, uh, number one. And number two, uh, interesting enough, uh, obviously the three kids in the story are, are my three children, and uh, he had never seen a picture of my children, yet he uh, drew them in a way that they looked so much like my real children that I was surprised. My, my daughter has uh, light brown hair, and, and so does the, the girl in the book. My middle son is blonde with black eyes, and so does the, the, the character that, that it's, it's him in the book. And my older son has black hair with, like, caramel-colored eyes, and so does this, uh, this boy that has the power of the wind in the, in the book. And, and, and I was so, so surprised that it was just like an incredible coincidence. So we, we had a great match without ever speaking to each other. Well, you know, that sounds truly magical. Now, it, it was, it was, and, and, and so, you know, the, the whole book, it, it has been an incredible source of satisfaction for me because uh, it was a dream that I've had for a long time, and, um, and, and, and I like it because it's a book that, number one, uh, it's not for Hispanics, it's not for, for an English audience, it's for, it's for everybody, it's a universal story, it has several universal messages, and like I told you before, it, it, it throws a bridge between generations, it's the kind of book that we the parents used to uh, grow up with, and it's a book that has the elements of magic and superpowers that our kids are used to. And um, funny enough, when I was trying to come up with a name for the characters, I consulted with my son, Julian, who is an avid reader. Uh, just to give you an example, he's in fourth grade, and his reading level is at, at a freshman in high school, second semester uh, student, oh. and he's always loved reading, so he was a great person to talk to. And I said to him, hey, what, what do you think I should call the evil emperor? And uh, in Spanish, Moco uh, means Bubert. And he, he was trying to be, uh, I guess he was trying to be, uh, uh, you know, like uh, like funny and shocking. And he goes, oh, let's call him Moco Noco, using the word Moco, Bubert. And, uh, and I was like, he was trying to like shock me, not thinking that I was going to, you know, take him seriously. But when he said it, it was just like so perfect that I said, that's it. And he was like, hey, I didn't mean that seriously, but that's the name. And he goes perfect with the, the evil emperor. Well, how did your children react when they saw uh, themselves reflected in living color in this book? Well, they started to try to uh, to, um, to contribute a little bit too much uh, because they were so excited, and um, and they were you know they were kind of uh, trying to add you know different elements into the story. But you kind of have to be uh, in that sense like an emperor and say, okay, enough. 
because uh, you have to draw the line somewhere. And uh, of course, their input is in the book, but uh, you have to go to print at some point. And uh, they, they were very happy with it. They're very happy that my kids' names are Julian, Adrian, and Lara. And in the book, the the, the characters are Julianchi, Adrianchi, and Larilu, which are the nicknames that I tell them in Spanish uh, in real life. So they knew perfectly from day one that those three kids were them. Is there a special talent that you need to write for children? Well, you know, I don't know because for me, when I when I accepted to do this project, I had no previous experience writing children's books. And when I first started to write the book, um, I was going through the process of a divorce. So it was very difficult. I had to stop the project because, uh, you know, the last thing in my mind at that time was to be in the world of fantasy of a child. Yet um, the, 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 the magical thing that happened was that it was a process of a divorce that gave me the idea because then as a single mom, when I would come to work after, after a long day, I would have my three kids, you know, stretching their little arms for my attention and I would get very frustrated because I would grab one, the other, the other ones would cry. And um, it was trying to reconcile that, that I found the, the, the underlying message of the story, which is we have to work together and a family that's united is invincible. Let's work together instead of fighting with each other. And, um, and so, you know, things happen in, in a way that they have a, a reason to be, and that's how I see it. Well, certainly that's something that single parents can remember to do. What words of wisdom would you share with parents to encourage their children to read? Well, I would, I would say, you know, if you have the problem that I had, make up a story. Make up the story that engages them and includes things that, that they're interested in because uh, no outside writer knows that better than yourself. And uh, you, imagination can really, really put together a family, and, and in this case, it did. What did you like to read as a child? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I, I love to read since I was little. And one of the things that I wanted to accomplish with this book was to include elements that I had and I was fascinated with as a child. I used to re read books like uh, King Midas, which is a magical fable. And, and it was wonderful because it's a kind of book like I hope the magic cane will be, which you can read when you're young, a little bit older, and then later, and you will still be fascinated because it has lessons and a deeper meaning that, that, that throws light into your present life at whatever level you're in, at whatever stage of your life you're in. And, and that was the case with King Midas. I also liked uh, The Little Prince. I liked The Little Prince because Again, it was a story that I read in different um, eras of my life, and then each time it brought a deeper meaning and threw light in something that maybe was going on in my life at the time. And, and then I also love uh, Greek mythology because uh, when I was little, my father was the chancellor of the university in Puerto Rico, so every afternoon all the professors from the university would gather in my house and they would play music and read poetry or literature, and there was this particular professor who would always... Um, tell me stories about Greek mythology. I used to wait with, with a great expectation the moment in which he told me the, the story of the day. So I grew up with all the you know, uh, stories from Greek mythology, and, and I loved it. And, and as a matter of fact, when I saw Mokonoko, the, the evil emperor, he, he looks like he could be out of, a, of, a, of Greek mythology because he, you know, of course, not exactly, but he has that little element like, like Medusa, although she had serpents, you know. But in this case, the, the, that deformation of the face and, and what goes on, it, it's, it's kind of a little bit like that, and I love that. How did your childhood shape who you became as an adult? Well, of course, that, that's so, so key in, in all of us. In my case, my parents were were very pro-education and reading, and they were very, very, very uh, 
uh, into pursuing, you know, excellence in, in academics. And, uh, you know, my father uh, told me one time I got a C, and my father sat me down, and this is the biggest lesson I've, I've, I've learned in my life, and he sat me down very seriously and said, you never come back into this house with a C. You either come with an A or an F, but never a C, never mediocre. You're either the best of the best or the best of the worst, but never mediocre. And that has been like a, a constant in my life, and, um, and it was a great lesson. And they were always surrounded by, like I told you, with, by professors, by, by things that were, you know, to enrich the mind and the soul. And, 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 and I've always from my kids as well. Well, obviously, what your father told you was very profound because you are considered the best of the best. Now, we've talked about Maria, the children's author. Let's talk about Maria Celeste, the journalist and television celebrity. You've been picked in a celebrity poll uh, at in People in Espanol as the most popular and credible television personality. You obviously have worked very hard, but how do you handle the challenges that come with being a celebrity? Well, you know what? Um, I've always think that, that in this industry, there's a lot of very talented people that end up going nowhere and a lot of people that don't have that much talent that uh, accomplish fantastic things. And I think uh, the people that are successful, and in my case, I can vouch for myself, uh, one of the keys is to have your feet on the ground, uh, never to to let your, your head get too big, because when that happens, you start making the wrong decisions. You start making decisions based on your ego, and the ego is very uh, uh, unstable, as we will know. You can mm-hmm. be a great uh, race car driver and, and, know, um, and, um, and not uh, be successful because you depend on a team, on the mechanics that take care of the car, et cetera, et cetera. And I've always been a team player, and I've always done from A to Z in my show as to make sure that the show does well and in my career the same way. So I think uh, having a head on your shoulders and, and not letting your ego rule and always knowing that, that uh, this is a passing thing, fame is a passing thing, and you have to always live like tomorrow you can be without everything that you have. And when you have all those elements uh, very clear in your mind, you will proceed in, in a way that, that you make decisions with principles and with things that are right for your career and not with the immediate ego. Uh, Newsweek in 2006 selected you as one of the top 20, 20 women, top 20 women poised to be the next generation of leaders in their field. What specific advice would you give A, aspiring journalists, and B, aspiring writers? Well, um, a starting writer, I will first say, write down everything that comes to your mind, because us writers, we have incredible ideas and we're always in our minds inventing, writing, and imagining things and, and, and very few times do we sit down and we actually put them in black and white. And when we really decide to do it, then all those great ideas that we had previously uh, have, you know, basically disappeared into thin air. So I think writing them down helps you for when you really have to write. And second, it gives you the skills and the practice to, to keep, uh, writing, which is how you become a better writer with practice. And, and as far as the journalist goes, uh, there's a lot of young people studying communications and wanting to go in this field, and there's so very few opportunities that the key is to do what I did. I, I, I didn't get to where I wanted right off the bat. I, I had to start from way at the bottom, and that has two advantages. First of all, uh, you learn everything, so when you get to the top, nobody can tell you 
uh, otherwise, because you know the business in every way, form, or fashion, and you actually contribute to different aspects of, of the production of, of whatever you're doing. And second of all, it doesn't matter where you start. Uh, in this industry in particular, it, the tradition, the, the, the usual thing is to hire from within. So you can start doing an internship in a station, and you don't know how many uh, people that are big producers and executives in, in, in the networks we have that started as actually uh, interns. And um, that was portrayed, something funny happened to me. One time I was in Disney World and I was in Universal Studios, sorry, one time I was in uh, Universal Studios and I ran into this kid that wanted to be a caricaturist. And he was there basically, uh, literally, sweeping the floors. And he told me, well, I'm here because I couldn't get a job in what I wanted, but I know that here I will run into the people that, that are in the business. And he actually did. And we did a story about him and the show, and it was incredible because he put to the test uh, and, and confirmed what, I, what I'm telling you now. Well, you obviously could write a book on how to succeed uh, in many areas of life. What's next for you? Well, I, I definitely want to keep writing. That's my, my passion. And whenever I retire, I will write even if it's for myself because uh, writing is something that gives you an incredible satisfaction. And uh, what's next? Well, I have a lot of projects in my career, but... And I always like to keep reinventing myself. I think that is a key element uh, when you are in this kind of business because people get bored very easily. And um, and I like to, to do it not just for that reason, for marketing and strategic purposes, but also because doing different things help me find out things about myself. You know, when you have different uh, challenges, like writing a children's book without knowing how to do it, and it comes out well, then you feel an incredible satisfaction that you took the chance. And, um, and and you also learn, like one time I was invited to participate in a, in a, in a soap opera as a guest uh, actress, and I'm not an actress. And I said yes, and I did it because it's a fantastic uh, opportunity, and I, it could have bombed, but I did it, and I love going into that little world and understanding how it works. And then, I, you know, I stepped right back into mine, and it was fine. Uh, but it's also something good for your viewers because they, they see in different uh, facets and they see different, you know, things that you can do. So so I think that's very important. I always say that Madonna is, has been very clever in her career because she's like a chameleon. She always does different things and comes up with different uh, options that makes you keep tuned to her and wanting to find out more about her life. Well, like mother, like daughter. Can you give us a preview of what fans can expect to hear from you at the festival on September 29th? Well, they can expect uh, me to answer all the questions that they may have about the book, or about my career, future plans, anything they want to ask. I've always been very open with the, uh, the people that support my career. And, you know, I, I'm literally an open book. I, I like to, to share uh, my life and, and my projects with my viewers, in this case my readers. Because I, I believe that they've given me the opportunity to, to go into their homes every day and they buy my books and, and they show interest in, in my life, I owe it to them. I, I think that I, I kind of, as a viewer myself and reader myself and fan of many Hollywood stars myself, I resent when they, they, they expect you to buy their books and their music and go to the movies. And then when you in turn want to find out more about their, themselves, about them, sorry, they, they, they kind of block you and tell you that they don't want to talk about their private life or, or what goes on in their minds. And I think that's a, a very uh, hypocritical attitude, and, and I'm the opposite of that. And I think that has, has been a, a positive thing in my career. Why was it important for you to participate in the National Book Festival? Was it well, to, to me, to me was, it's an incredible honor because, first of all, 
Uh, from the obvious point of view, it's a fantastic, uh, you know, trampoline for the launching of this book. Second of all, because there's so many established, prestigious authors there that to me, for me to be in their company, it's an incredible honor. And and also because it gives me the opportunity to be with the uh, with the fan base and the readers of, of the different uh, genres and and to get to know more about them, just like they expect to know more about me. What do you think um, is the most important story you've ever covered? You know, there have been so many important stories that I think that to point at one will belittle so many others. But I do tell you that my experience has been that the most amazing stories and the most amazing interviews are not usually the ones that are in the in the headlines or in the cover of magazines or or in the uh, you know opening the the news shows. They usually are the ones that are in and, and, and the people that give the best interviews are the ones that are not famous because usually famous people are very uh, are coach of how to answer and they're very guarded and you know people out there are so much more sincere and honest and, and I always appreciate that and you always get a lot more of those interviews than, than the big coups you know that people think are, are and people are waiting for. Uh, I, I do I do remember one that had an incredible impact in my career, which was the fall of the Soviet Union, because at the time I was just starting in my career, and I was lucky enough to be there in the middle of Glasnost and Perestroika and to start um, covering that incredible transition out of, the, out of Moscow. And I was there for like a whole month, and when I came back, uh, you know, that, that documentary I did about what was going on, I uh, got a lot of attention and, and got a bunch of awards, and that really was a... A, a big, big push for my career, and, and I got a lot of attention because of that, and, and it, 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 I started in, a, in the right track. Do you have any closing remarks uh, for us today? Uh. Well, I, I'm, I'm very grateful that, that there's interest in, in this book, The Magic King. To me, it, it's, not a, uh, it's not a project to, to, you know, to get fame or money or anything. It's a project uh, that I want to really communicate with, with the readers in a different level from what I do in television, in a more uh, magical, uh, imaginary way, and, and also to, to, to revive the, the, the classic, the, the, the magical fables that I grew up with, which unfortunately nowadays uh, they're not that, uh, that, uh, that common. So I, I really wanted to rescue that, that, uh, that genre and, and, and share it with kids of this generation. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank uh, you. We are looking forward to your appearance at the National Book Festival on Saturday, September 29th on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. For more details and a list of participating authors, visit loc.gov bookfest. Thank you for listening. <laughs>